morning, everybody. Uh, this morning we're going to be reading from Psalm 110. So if we don't have a Bible, we do have some down the back there on the table. Um, so Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendour. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way and so he will lift up his head high. Thanks, Joel. Psalm 110, what a magnificent psalm. At King Charles' coronation at Westminster Abbey about three weeks ago, a priest, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, led the service. There was a lot of singing. Um, Charles was presented with a number of gifts and special regalia. He, he was anointed, and finally he was crowned King Charles III by Archbishop Welby. Now, whether we like the idea or not, Charles is our king, and he has been our king since last September, when Queen Elizabeth II died. The coronation service, what it did was publicly recognise his right to be king and his rightful rule over us and he was crowned as king and we celebrated the importance of that. Now the coronation of King Charles III gives us helpful insight into the significance of Psalm 110. So let's ask God to help us understand that now. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us. Help us to understand the point of Psalm 110 as it points us to Jesus. We ask that you might be magnified and we would be built up in our faith as a result. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Psalm 110 has two parts. Uh, there should be a slide coming up, and you'll see two parts, verses 1 to 3, and then verses 4 to 7. And there's, in each part, there's one Lord speaking to another Lord. So a capital L-O-R-D speaking to a little L-O-R-D. And then it's followed, each section is followed by images of triumph and victory. 
So verses 1 to 3, the capital L-O-R-D promises to the little L-O-R-D that he will sit on his throne as king. And it uses I will statements. Things like, I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Your troops will be willing on your day of power. And in verses 4 to 7, the capital L-O-R-D declares to the little L-O-R-D that he is a priest forever. And it uses you are language, followed by several he will statements. So the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, etc. So basically, hold this in mind. The first three verses, it's, it's the capital L-O-R-D speaking, saying, I will, I will, I will. The second half of the psalm is what that capital L-O-R-D will do to the little L-O-R-D in making him a priest forever. And then what he will do. I will, he will. Bear that in mind. So now let's look at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, I want you to notice there are three persons involved here. If we could just put up the final slide. Three persons. There's the narrator, King David, who wrote the psalm. There's the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which is the, the, name, the covenant name of God, Jehovah who promised and declared. And then there's the one David calls my Lord, David's Lord, which is the Messiah who is spoken about. So can you see three people? It's a psalm of David. David's writing it. He talks about what Jehovah is going to do to his Lord, Christ, the Messiah. Thanks. So what we have in Psalm 110 is King David prophesying the future reign and rule of his own king. He's the king, but he's saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my throne until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And that wasn't spoken to David. It was spoken to David's Lord. So what he's prophesying is about happened 1,000 years later in the person of Jesus Christ when he would fulfil what God the Father promises and declares in this psalm. Now for all the pomp and ceremony we witnessed at the coronation of King Charles, his reign differs from the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ, well, in so many ways, but in one significant way, this way, King Charles is a king, but he's not a priest. He was crowned by a priest. But he's a king, he's not a priest. 
But our Lord Jesus Christ is both a king and a priest. So David's Lord is both king and priest. The one who decreed him a priest and seated him as king of kings and lord of lords is the Lord Jehovah himself. So what David tells us here is so significant that the New Testament quotes or alludes to Psalm 110 about 30 times. It's more than any other psalm is referenced. So we ought to pay attention to this. The New Testament is saying this is really, really significant. For instance, Jesus himself quotes this psalm when he's speaking to the Pharisees. And he says this in Matthew 22. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be David's son? Christ was trying to make the Pharisees see that Jesus, the son of David, was also the Lord of David. That the Messiah was both David's human descendant and king. They were talking to him. King David did not live to see all his enemies placed under his feet. He was often on the run from his enemies. Even as he was dying, Adonijah, his son, crowned himself as king, declared himself, I'm the king instead of the designated or chosen son, Solomon. And that caused a whole kerfuffle. The New Testament homes in repeatedly on Psalm 110, verses 1 and 4, which head up those two sections of I will and he will, you are and he will. And the reason why is that the writers knew they have it on sworn authority of Jehovah himself that the Messiah is king and priest. And the New Testament says, that's Jesus. The only one who could possibly fulfil that is Jesus Christ. So the New Testament book of Hebrews cites Psalm 110 numerous times. Sometimes verse 1, sometimes verse 4. So in the first chapter, verse 13 of Hebrews, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So he's, it's saying Jesus is superior to the angels. God never said that about an angel. But he did say it about his son. And that son is Jesus, the image of the invisible God. In chapter 5, verse 6, it says this, and he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, quoting Psalm 110, verse 4. We're going to look at that. Chapter 7, 
Verses 17 and 22, it says, For it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, but he, Jesus, became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Wow. And it's on the oath sworn by the Lord himself, the capital L-O-R-D. So the book of Hebrews tells us the meaning of this strange verse about Melchizedek. Who was he? Who is this guy, Melchizedek? We only read about him in Genesis 14. There's nothing more said about him after Genesis 14 until he pops up mysteriously in Psalm 110. So he appears unexpectedly to Abraham in Genesis 14. And he's one of the most mysterious figures in the Bible because we don't know anything about him either leading up to who he is or after who he is. It's just that little incident and then that's it. And that's a lot of the significance of why Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Firstly, this is what we learn from Hebrews about Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. In the person of Melchizedek, the offices of king and priest are combined, just like with the Lord Jesus and not like King Charles. Abraham greeted him with bread and wine paid tithes to him, recognising that Melchizedek was greater than him. And when Jesus was here, the Pharisees said to him, are you greater than our father Abraham? Yes. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. They didn't understand it. Melchizedek blessed Abraham in the name of God Most High. So the one the Jews celebrated as the the founding father of their nation was blessed by someone superior to him. Priests bless. So in return, Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything because it is the role of a priest to receive the tithes. And in the same way, we remember Christ with bread and wine. And we offer to him the best of ourselves as living sacrifices. Melchizedek was a man ordained by God as a priest without the expected genealogical credentials of a priest. And the priesthood of Christ is the same. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah and nothing is spoken about priesthood 
for the tribe of Judah. That's the role of the Levites, the tribe of Levi. And finally, the priesthood of Melchizedek began and ended in himself, meaning there's no evidence of any priestly lineage leading up to Melchizedek, because I don't know anything about him, and there's no evidence of any priesthood continuing after him. It's like the priesthood begins and, and comes to its completion in Melchizedek, and that's exactly the same with Christ. He is our great high priest forever in heaven. There's not to be any other priests after him. And he didn't come from the priestly tribe. Things about Melchizedek keep pointing us to Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Psalm 110 shows us that. So this means that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords and priest, great high priest. He's king over King Charles III. He's king over our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. He's king over our Premier, Jeremy Rockcliffe. He's king over all the local mayors around the state. He's king over you and me. The powers of darkness recognise this, but often people's eyes are blinded to this and they don't see it. Sin has blinded our eyes. and We don't recognise the truth of it. But we who are believers, who've had our eyes opened to Christ as our King and our great High Priest, do we worship him as he deserves, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as one who reigns over us in the power of an endless life, an endless priesthood, an endless kingship? No one is going to succeed him as king or priest. And as the one who, through the cross, sacrificed himself for us in utter humility, the king who stooped down to die in our place, but who rose again, who was raised up in victory, who was exalted to the right hand of God. Do we consecrate ourselves? to Christ as our great high priest? Are we thankful to him? Do we worship him like that? Today is Pentecost Sunday, commemorating the coming of the Holy Spirit, 50 days after Christ, the final Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. So what has Psalm 110 got to do with Pentecost? Well, listen to what the Apostle Peter said in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven and yet he said... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
Peter got it. He saw that Jesus was the fulfillment of Psalm 110. And he even understood the significance of the I will and he will. God has raised this Jesus from the dead. In Psalm 110, Jehovah says, I will, I will, I will. And then after declaring him a priest forever, he says, he will, he will, he will. And, and Peter says, he, Jesus, has poured out what you now see and hear. David was not a priest, let alone forever. He died and could not judge all the nations. The only one of his descendants to whom Psalm 110 could possibly apply is to Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God, the Messiah, who was to anoint his people with the Holy Spirit, just as they had witnessed on the day of Pentecost. Peter understood the tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit and its significance. This is the little L-O-R-D doing things because of what the capital L-O-R-D had done to him in installing him as a priest forever. Christ seated at the right hand of God was his coronation. Now he's giving gifts to his church. And the church is saying yes and celebrating and worshipping. So having suffered and shed his infinite blood as the Passover lamb, the exalted Messiah had turned away the Father's wrath and cleared the way and made it possible to bestow the Holy Spirit on his followers. Until Christ had borne that wrath, there is no way we could have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. He'd been crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and his coronation gift to his people was to pour out the Spirit, the living presence of God, to and in and upon and among his followers, his worshippers, John put it this way in his gospel. He said, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Until Jesus was lifted up and enthroned on his cross and laid in the tomb to, to be the full sacrifice for our sins, until he was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, that the Holy Spirit could not be poured out. So Pentecost celebrates the success of Jesus' mission to redeem a people for himself to the glory of God throughout all the world, people from every tongue and tribe and nation. It celebrates the answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, I have given them the glory that you gave me 
that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I will, he will. So that first Pentecost revealed Christ's almighty power to heal, to restore, to unify people, to bring broken things back together, to bring dead people back to life, to bring arguing, warring people together in unity. Listen to the effect of the coming of the Holy Spirit on those first worshippers on the day of Pentecost, right at the end of Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe as the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles took effect. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The ascended king, priest, the Lord Jesus Christ kept adding to their number daily those who are being saved. He will, he will, he will. He is building his church. So in terms of Psalm 110, Christ's people were willing in the day of his power. If you look at Psalm 110, it says, The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendour. Your young men will come to you like dew from the, from the morning's womb. And on the day of Pentecost, one of the things they said was, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. What's going on here? These men aren't drunk like you suppose. It's like from the womb, the birth of the morning, God is pouring out his spirit and people are being made willing. So Peter explained to the astonished onlookers, exalted to the right hand of God, he, Christ, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and he, Christ, has poured out what you now see and hear. Christ's priestly sufferings on earth were finished. So now his heavenly rule could begin, subduing his enemies, blessing his people, building his church, taking the gospel to the ends of the world. Through Christ's earthly ministry, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. But now in his heavenly ministry, Christ is in us the hope of glory, just as he promised. But notice a contrast between Pentecost and Psalm 110. Pentecost reveals more of the Messiah's gracious blessing. 
Psalm 110 shows more of the justice and military rule side of the Messiah's reign. The Lord extending his mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies, crushing kings on the day of his wrath, judging the nations, heaping up the dead. Verse 7 pictures the Messiah with head held high, refreshed and vigorous. One of the main things Psalm 110 does is teach us about our Lord Jesus Christ that he is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. That's a caricature. At best, it's only half the story. At worst, it's positively dangerous because it's misleading. Throughout history, we have seen the ascended priest king, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, building his church, empowering people to withstand persecution, opposition, giving them the strength. Nations have come and gone, but the church continues throughout the generations. The only explanation you can have for that is that God is in the midst of her, strengthening her. Psalm 110 helps give us that necessary understanding that we are still in a battle until Christ returns. That's what we see in the book of Revelation, isn't it? The lamb who's a lion. We need to remember there is both the church triumphant in heaven and the church militant on earth. The church in heaven is washed clean and pure, robed in the righteousness of Christ, at rest in his victory. But we who are on the earth are the church militant, all dirty and sweaty, not yet perfect, but sword in hand, clad with the armour of God, fighting the works of the world, the flesh and the devil. And we do it in the strength that Christ supplies. God's power and glory is displayed in both of these things. So we see it by the strength of the Holy Spirit, we're enabled to put sin to death in us. And we can put on the new ways, the new man. We can see it when we rebuke sin and when we serve humbly. There is a place for rebuking sin. Parents do it with their children. If you don't, you need to. Church leaders sometimes need to do it. And sometimes church leaders need that too. In dying well and in living well, we see the power of Christ. In our dogged perseverance and in our miraculous deliverance, we see the power of Christ. In our crying out, how long, O Lord? And in our singing, praise the Lord, we see both. So what have we learned from Psalm 110? Well, we learned that the Lord promised a king to sit on his throne and declared him to be a priest forever like Melchizedek. And our Lord Jesus Christ is our priestly king. The suffering of Christ's cross was necessary to pave the way, clear the way for the crowning of his labours and the giving of the Spirit. And the blessing of his heavenly coronation came down at Pentecost on the church. 
as a permanent gift of the Holy Spirit to his people. And in the strength of the Spirit, he has given us a mission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And he is with us. He is building his church. He is growing us up and bringing us to maturity. God has fulfilled what he promised and he did it in Christ who now administers a new covenant, a new covenant that works, not fails. Listen to these words from Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's do that. Let's draw near to the Lord with full assurance of heart. Christ is on the throne and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Trust him, believe in him, draw near to him with all your troubles and all your difficulties. None of them are too difficult for Christ to handle. He will be with us to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, this is a tremendous psalm of encouragement to us. Clothed in language that we find a bit difficult to understand, dead bodies and reigning with a scepter and a sword and a, a priest after a, the name of someone who's strange to us, Yet, Father, the New Testament has explained this so magnificently to us. We understand the point of the cross, the point of Jesus' resurrection to your right hand, his coronation as King of kings and Lord of lords and as our great high priest, pouring out the Spirit on the church. Will you please, O Lord, do it again to us? Refresh our hearts in the power of your spirit. Teach us what it means to be filled with the spirit, not quenching the spirit. Growing in the grace and knowledge of our saviour, in confidence, drawing near in our weakness, knowing that you hear us. When we sin and we fall short, and we all do, knowing that you will receive us because the blood of Christ atones for all our sins. Thank you for this hope of the gospel. Thank you for the coming of the Holy Spirit who makes the gospel real and effective in our hearts and lives each day. In Jesus we pray. Amen.